Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Gail Thomas. Anybody that wasn't good for me was out. I got rid of all the toxic people. And there was no one left. <laughs> that and more. But first, don't forget to pitch us your stories for our Halloween episode and our Winter Holidays episode at risk-show.com submissions. And thestorystudio.org is where you'll find our storytelling training and corporate workshops. That's thestorystudio.org. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the new Master Sounds behind me now, and we're calling this week's episode Trial Runs. In a little bit, we're going to hear from a new favorite of ours, Harold Cox, who teaches at Boston University, a story he told at the last Risk Live show at Caveat. But before that, a story that one of you sent in. You know, we're always asking you to send in your little anecdotes. Well, Maggie Mae Anderson sent this one in, and it's a story we call Benoit Bugaboo. When I was 22 years old, I was working at a very quintessential Vermont country store in an old building that had a one-pump gas pump outside. It was a general store and a post office and a deli. And I essentially spent all day running between all those different stations 
and waiting for this beautiful carpenter to come in over his morning coffee and get his lunch snack so I could flirt viciously with him. It was also at this time in my life that I happened to be at the bar one night with one of my best friends, Amy, and confiding to her that I still hadn't had an orgasm. Sex was still a pretty freaking lackluster thing in my life. And I have to tell you, like, I just think I'm not built like other women. I don't think I have like sensory perception in my vagina. To which she responded, hmm, honey, sounds to me like you need a pair of Benoit balls. Now, I had never heard of Benoit balls. And so she proceeded to tell me that they were bigger than a marble, but smaller than a golf ball. And they were two balls that you would slide up inside your vagina. And that having these balls in you during the day just help you get a better felt sense of your vagina. I remember her saying like, you're gonna feel yourself from the inside out. Now I was like, well, that sounds interesting, but I figured I'd never get a pair. So like, whatever, thanks for the info. And she's like, oh no, no, you're not getting off that quickly, honey. Two days from now, I'm taking you shopping. Sure enough, two days later, Amy brought me to my first ever sex shop. Never been to one before. I had no idea what I was getting myself into in a way. And she buys me the Benoit balls. It's a gift from her. She's being oh so generous. So I bring them home that night. And this was 1998. So I could not Google about Benoit balls. I could not YouTube a tutorial. And in fact, the Benoit balls came in this little glass box without a stitch of instructional information. Like not even a scrap of paper, like nothing. Just the balls in a box. I woke up the next day pretty curious, pretty excited. So I washed them off, slid them in, and then went to work. And didn't even think like, maybe I should put on a pair of underwear today. Nope, just go to work. And I gotta say for the first couple hours, I really had it. I was essentially holding a kegel the whole time. And I remember at one point thinking like, oh my gosh, maybe I could be one with these Benoit balls. Because I was aware of, I just had a deeper felt sense of my insides. Where like my vagina had been this thing that I knew I had, but couldn't feel like I had it. With the Benoit balls in the first couple hours, I'm like, oh, I have a deeper like felt sense of my vagina from the inside out. So I thought it was going pretty good. Then the lunch rush hit. And no joke, mid-step between kind of jogging out of the deli and heading toward the cash register, a ball released itself from me. Before I knew what the heck was happening, it ran down the inside of my leg, out of my pant, actually hit the floor with a bit of a clunk sound. And now this old building with wide plank wood floors, it was old enough that the floor was nowhere near flat. It actually completely tilted. And that darn Benoit ball caught momentum. And I couldn't catch it. And I go running after my Benoit ball. It actually hits up against the boot of the guy who's waiting to check out. And I look up and it's the freaking carpenter that I've been flirting with all season. Oh my God. He looks down and says, what is that? Some sort of ball bearing? And then he leans over like he's going to pick the darn thing up. I am so thankful that I was quick enough to scoop it and pick it up. At this point, I am mortified. And I just change the subject, right? I'm like, <laughs> oh, pay no attention to that. Oh, how is the job site today? 
How are things out there in your world? So I did not put that darn Benoit ball back in that day. And I never wore them to work again. And you know what, to be honest, I probably only tried them out another like six or so times before just retiring them back to their glass case and putting them in the back of a drawer. And I actually don't know what happened to them. I moved out of that apartment about a year later and I don't really remember where those Benoit balls ended up. What happened? Did your, did your balls drop off? Hmm? You have dropped so many balls, man. Hi, everybody. I'm so glad to be here. Um, but the thing that I have to tell you is something that I just don't like to admit, and that is I'm a talker. <laughs> I talk to anybody about anything at any time, and I have done this my whole life. When I was a kid, my mother used to say, Harold, baby darling, please just shut up. <laughs> and I wouldn't. And then I started telling stories, and I would tell stories about my family, I would tell stories about myself, but even though I'm a talker, even though I tell stories, I'm also a very private person. There are things that I just don't and I can't talk about. And what that does is it gives me a certain amount of control about myself. Control is really very important to me. I've often wondered, so where did this need to be in control come from? Where did this need to keep things kind of bottled up inside of me come from? And then I remember this one time when I was in school when I was a kid. So when I was young, I went to Catholic school. I was in kindergarten at this particular time and there were maybe 18 or 20 kids who were in my kindergarten class. On this one particular day, we were in the chapel. We were in the chapel with the priest, just my class and the priest. He was talking about something really important. And you know, he lowered his voice and we were very attentive because we had been taught that when you're in the chapel, you have to be paying special attention and you have to be reverent. So as five and six year olds, we were quiet, we were reverent, we were listening. He lowered his voice because he was telling us something really important. And at the point that his voice was the lowest, I farted. <laughs> I farted loud. It bounced off the wall. Kids lost control. There was more giggling that was going on. And at that moment, my teacher, the nun who was sitting over to the side, just looked and she had no expression on her face at all. When we got back to the classroom, the nun came up to me and she had that expression that I understood exactly what she meant. She said through her face, I know that you know that I know what you did. And then she said to me, we don't do those things and we don't talk about it. And then she pulled out a ruler because that's the only thing that nuns have inside of the habit are rulers. She pulled out a ruler and she beat me on the hand. Now I think she beat me so I wouldn't fart. So maybe that's the reason I have things all bottled up. I just need a good fart. But whatever, 
there's a need for me to stay in control. And I often wonder, so am I in control of everything? A number of years ago, I got diagnosed with prostate cancer. It's very difficult when you get a diagnosis like that. You don't know, are you going to live, are you going to die, what's going to happen to you? My mother had died of cancer. I didn't know what was happening to me next. And I knew that what I needed at that moment was to have someone who could assist me, someone who could provide some control, who could provide information for me. So I went to see my doctor who was going to be that person. I walked in the doctor's office at this particular time, and the doctor was there, and there were also three other people. I think they were medical types. I don't really know who they were, but they were also in the room as well. We sat down at this large table, and we talked. We talked about my life. We talked about the cancer. We talked about possible treatment kinds of things. And then the doctor said to me, it's time for the examination. Now, I know what this examination is. I have had it before. It's the digital rectal exam known as finger in the ass. <laughs> I don't like it. I didn't want to do it. But the doctor is in control, and I need to let him do what he needs to do. So the doctor told me to stand up from where I was sitting, and he told me to go over to this other chair. And he told me to bend over and put your hands on the chair. I did that. As I did that, he pushed a button, and the chair just began to lower. <laughs> now, my hands are going down because the chair is going down. My elbows are going down. My shoulders are going down. My head is going down but my ass is going up. <laughs> For somebody who needs to be in control, this is a very compromising position. So at the same time that I'm in this position, I also notice that the other four medical types beginning to pull on gloves. And I instantly knew that they all intended to examine me. They were all going to put their hand in my ass because that's how you check the prostate. And I thought, no, I don't know. And I was having these thoughts in my head. On the one hand, I thought, the doctor is in charge and the doctor needs to do what he needs to do. But I don't know if I want four hands in my ass. The doctor is in charge, but I, I don't know what I should do. And, and so I decided, you know, you just need to do something. And I stood up and I said, hey, um, can we think about this? There's room for one. And the doctor said, I beg your pardon? I said, there's only room for one finger. And the doctor said, you know, we all need to examine you. And I said, no, you really don't. This is not necessary. And he said, well, okay. So we talked back and forth. And then eventually the doctor said, we'll just have just one person. So I don't know which one of them examined me. It didn't matter at that point. I had won the battle. I lost the war, but I won the battle at that point. After this experience of being with the doctor, I had to go to several other doctors, and they all did exams. And then they made the decision that I was going to have surgery, which meant they were going to remove my prostate. And as I talked with the, with the surgeon, he said, you know, there are two things that you are going to experience. You're going to experience incontinence, where you will have no control over the way that you pee, and you will experience erectile dysfunction. 
And I want you to make sure that you buy some diapers because as soon as the surgery is over, you will need these diapers. Now, I've told a few people that I'm going to have this surgery, but I've told absolutely nobody that I'm going to have erectile dysfunction. I've told nobody that I'm going to experience incontinence, and I've really told nobody that I'm going to wear diapers. I don't want anybody to know any of those things, and especially that I'm going to wear diapers. And what's more is, I now need to go and buy them. Where am I going to buy them? Because I'm convinced that the moment that I go into the CVS, everybody from my church and from my university is going to be there, and they're going to see me buying these diapers, and I just don't want that. So I thought, you know, i got to figure out what am I going to do. Well, obviously, what I need to do is go someplace where they aren't there. So I got in my car, and I drove 90 miles to Springfield, Massachusetts. I live in Boston. I drove to Springfield. I am a man with a mission. So I walked in the store, and I went straight to the places where the baby diapers are. Mm -mm, They're not there. And I started looking around and thinking, okay, so they're not with the toothpaste. They're not with the soap. They're not with the toilet paper. I'm going to have to ask somebody, where are these diapers? And that's the last thing that I want to do, is to ask anybody, where are these diapers? But at least I'm 90 miles away from home, so nobody will know me. So I started looking around for people that would ask. I saw a guy, he said, mm-mm. I saw a young woman, so definitely not. And then I saw this older woman who had this really very motherly smile. And I thought, that's the person that I need to ask. So I went over to her, and I got in a very submissive position. I rolled my shoulders forward. I lowered my head. And I said, with my lowest voice, ma'am, please tell me where are the adult diapers? And she started looking about, you know, kind of trying to remember. I could tell that she was trying to remember where they were. And then she looked back at me, And she said, hey, Martha, hey, Martha, where are the diapers? The woman is calling her friend asking, where are the diapers? She has outed me. She has told everybody that I'm going to be wearing these diapers. She's told the whole store, I don't know what I'm going to do at that moment. I want a lightning bolt to come down and strike her and take her out. But I thought, if I just stand there and just freeze, maybe she won't see me. Well... She told me where they were, and you know what happened? Nothing. She didn't laugh. Nobody came up and told me that this was a stupid thing to do. I drove back to Boston kind of laughing at myself, thinking of how dumb it was that I had been so frightened about buying these diapers. Well, I had the surgery, and true to form, as the doctor told me, I experienced incontinence. I also experienced erectile dysfunction. It's very difficult. No man actually wants to stand up and tell his partner or anybody else that I can't get hard. Except I just did, I just told all of you, and I'm okay. A lot of times I have thought about my teacher, you know, the one who told me there are things we don't do and things that we don't say. And I know, after many decades of that experience, that she was wrong. 
There are lots of things that all of us experience. I experienced prostate cancer. I had erectile dysfunction. I experienced incontinence. And I know that it's okay to talk about it today, tomorrow, the next day. It is okay. This is Risk, this is Lord Huron behind me now, and we just heard from Harold Cox a story that he shared at our last Caveat show. Before that, we heard a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. And listen, I want to tell you, we've got another Caveat show coming up on August 18th. It's at 7 p.m. Eastern. Caveat is in New York City, and New York City law mandates that Caveat must require proof of vaccination from audience members. That's one of the reasons we also simultaneously live stream the show on YouTube. So be sure to get your tickets either for the in-person show or for the live stream at risk-show.com slash tour. A lot of people making a stink that Risk is discriminating against people for requiring proof of vaccination. It's not really our choice. It's the venues and the cities and the states that are laying down the rules here. But uh, if it was our choice, we would certainly choose to follow the science, which shows that being vaccinated is the best way to keep ourselves and our audiences safe. Now, I want to give a little shout-out to our newest Patreon members for giving $25 a month or more. They are Andy Spore Labuda, Jill Duran, Shanita Wilson, and Alex Steed. Oh my gosh! Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It really means the world to us. It really does help us keep going, and there's Tons of new bonus content over at patreon.com slash risk, including a new check-in from me. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that is at paypal.me slash risk show. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. 
each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling meeting new friends or just even to master a new skill but it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes that's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from one of everyone's favorite members of the Story Studio faculty, Gail Thomas. This was also recorded at the Last Risk Live show at Caveat, just like our upcoming show on August 18th. Now you can find Gail at gail-thomas.com, and here she is now with a story we call Patient 13. 
if I can remember how to do this. Oh, gosh. Hi. So I'm putting on my shoes. I've got them all laced up, and I'm pretty much ready to go. I just had the, um, my second annual follow-up visit after my cancer treatment, two years clear. And um, thank you. It's a while back. But, um, my, and my nurse practitioner, Christine, comes into the office, and I, she looks at me and says, uh, would you um, be interested in doing a study for cancer survivors with anxiety and depression? I'm surprised and offended. <laughs> it's been two years. I got through the cancer. I did the surgery. I did the chemo. I got through the relationship breakup. I even got through the loss of my little dog, Rusty. He had cancer the year after I did, and he didn't make it. But I'm fine. I have a job. I'm working. I'm functioning. I'm fine. In fact... I learned something that a girl from Oklahoma doesn't necessarily know. I learned how to stand up for myself. That's right. I, after going through all of this stuff, everybody, I stood up to doctors, I stood up to family members, anybody that wasn't good for me was out. I got rid of all the toxic people, and there was no one left. <laughs> they don't understand me. My family and friends, they don't understand what it's like to think you're going to die, to be fighting for your life. It's really exciting. <laughs> Every day was a life or death decision. Cancer, chemo, radiation. What am I going to do? How am I going to live? It was so exciting. And now that I'm back in this real normal world thing, I can't really relate to anybody. Now my decisions are like soy milk or skim. It's boring. And I just want to talk about the meaning of life. I don't want to talk about Starbucks. I just really pull away from people, and I don't trust them, and I don't really want to... All right, so just tell me a little bit about the study. Maybe I am a little... Maybe just tell me a little bit about the study. And so she ushers in two people, and they sit down. There's, uh, first of all, there's Dr. R., and he looks like, just like an absent-minded professor. He's probably in his late um, 30s. He has dark black hair and a tweed jacket and this little dorky grin on his face. And he's sitting there all sort of straight-laced. And, and sitting next to him is his assistant, Gigi, who's got, you could tell her, so her hair's, she's wearing a flowy skirt and her hair's up in this bun, sort of disheveled bun. And she looks like the hippie chick and he's the professor. And I'm like, oh, they're very cute. And Dr. R starts to talk and he says, well, this is a study that has been done at at um, UCLA and John Hopkins, and now we're going to do it at NYU. And it's a drug. It's, you're only going to do it one time, one drug, and one placebo. And I'm like, you know, I don't really want to do any more drugs. I did the chemo. I kind of don't want to do drugs. And then he says, well, and there's, there's four months of free therapy. I do like a good deal. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, so just tell me more about, about this drug. What's the drug? And he says, well, it's psilocybin. And I say, what's that? And he says, magic mushrooms. Oh, my gosh. Ram Das, Timothy Leary. I always imagined that I was like some sort of hippie chick. But when I was in college, I was so hyper. And I just already had so many crazy ideas in my head that I was sure that I was going to be the person that would think I could fly and would jump off the roof. 
so I didn't do any of that stuff. And I'd, I'd done, you know, in my adult life at this point, I'm, I'm 40 something and I, I'd done a little pop, but it didn't really work for me. So I was like, wow. <laughs> and he looks at me, really looks into my eyes and he says, we will help you. Okay, sign me up. I'm doing this thing. I mean, my friend Joe says that I'm the luckiest, unlucky person he knows. I got cancer, but I get to do mushrooms legally in an FDA study. It's like winning the cancer lottery. So we start the therapy immediately, and I I go to these weekly sessions in this lovely little sort of like living room space with this futon, and I get two doctors who just sit across from me and ask me questions. I mean, they're dedicated to me. And at the time, I had, you know, I'd started fostering dogs just to help me get over Rusty, and I I thought, they're like fostering me. And it's, it's just so nice that somebody actually cares, because it's hard to leave your doctors behind when you're getting over this stuff. And so they asked me a lot of questions and there's a lot of forms I have to fill out so many forms multiple choice and like one through ten are you eating are you losing weight are you gaining weight are you depressed are you suicidal have you ever had a traumatic experience have you ever you know had a great spiritual moment it's like so many forms and so finally the big day comes the big day I'm so excited and they tell me that I should bring something from home so I bring some photos and I bring Rusty's little squeaky duck I get there, and uh, I can see now that the futon that I've been sitting on for all our therapy has been turned into a bed, and there's a little blanket, and there's a blindfold, and there's a headset, and my friends are all like, oh, if you're going to do mushrooms, you need to go out into the woods, and you need to experience the the trees and the leaves, and I'm like, this is an FDA study, I'm going to be staying in that room, and they're going to be staring at me. (laughs) And I'm also thinking, this is going to be so boring for them, but it's my day. So that's their problem. <laughs> so, so Dr. Ross gets me up, and, and we, sit, we stand in a Dr. R, and we stand in a circle, and we hold hands. He says, "Okay, now you need to have an intention." I'm like, "Okay, uh, intention, peace, love." I just my intention is to do this drug. Can we please, can we please do the drug? And he has he has a special little pill that they've actually measured based on my weight and everything, and it's in this little glass jar, and the glass jar's in a chalice. And so we hold hands, and then I lay down, and I put on the blindfold, and I put on the headset. And the NYU doctors, the Stowell staff has gotten together and made this, like, psychedelic playlist, which is amazing. It is so fantastic. So I start listening to this music, and I'm like, this is going to be so internal. And I, I don't feel anything in the beginning, and I'm like, oh, damn, this is the placebo. And I'm just sort of like, oh, this is so boring. And then suddenly I start to really feel tired, and I'm yawning. And then suddenly I start to feel all this impression information like rushing into my head and it's it's a lot and I'm thinking okay something is happening and then I see these two like cow heads these psychedelic paper mache like uh colorful cow heads sort of going across my vision and then I see this cat chewing on my my bicycle the the, the tape on my bicycle and I don't know what that's about and it's like the, the information just keeps my head feels so full it's like every yogic thought every piece of wisdom it's just too too much I can't there's so much wisdom coming in there I can't believe it all there's a lot coming and so then I am um, I am um, I clutch Rusty's duck to my chest and I I have two really 
tough moments. I have a moment where I remember putting Rusty down, and then I have this really sharp pain of self-hatred. And it's shocking, and it's painful, and then the second I feel it, it's gone. Because I'm like, that's ridiculous. I can't possibly hate myself. I'm amazing. I'm so wonderful. I'm just fantastic. That's silly. And so I lift up the mask for a second, and I see Dr. R sitting over there just looking at me. And I see the art books behind him, and I think, art books, there's truth in the art books. I look back at Dr. R, and he says, TLO, trust and let go, trust and let go. And I'm like, put the mask back on. And I start to feel more and more. And then I see, I see this, this beautiful, like, farmhouse, like a little house on the prairie with a, with a, a little house and then this big field. And there's a lady standing in the middle of the field. And I think, oh, my God, I just think maybe she's me. And I know that I admire her greatly. <laughs> she's so amazing. And, and then I just start thinking about all the different people in my life. And I think about an ex-boy from a long time ago. And I could have married him, but I didn't. So that's okay. And then I think about the last guy. And I think the last guy, well, he's not supposed to be here now anyway so that's fine and so then suddenly I'm sort of floating in the air and I'm looking down on something and it's kind of like a it's like a table but it's sort of like a puzzle table sort of fuzzy and I look down at the table and I see there's the part of the table sort of cut out like a pie and it's cancer cancer's at the table I'm like, oh my God, cancer's at the table. Of course, it's not like bad thing, it's not a good thing. It's supposed to be at the table. And then my whole family's at the table and I see everybody at the table and I think, well, you know what? They tried as hard as they could. Sure, my brother wanted me to do a bunch of treatment and he was wrong and my dad came to, to, to the surgery of my mom and they didn't. They actually had me wait on them when they when after I was had surgery because I was on Percocet and I was like, but that's all right, they tried the best they could. And I think that, that you know what, they love me. They just, they did the best they could and they didn't really mean, they love me and I love them and that's beautiful and I just started thinking about how, you know, I used to paint and I used to draw and I really love that and I used to perform and I haven't done that in so long and I need to participate. I need to really contribute because, you know, there's a lot out there and it doesn't really matter if you're like old or young or fat or skinny or old or young or fat or skinny. You just need to contribute. You just need to do stuff and participate because we're all connected and we all go together and it's just so beautiful and I think that this is, I really got to stop fighting so much and I need to just, just live and I need to trust and I need to let go and it's oh eventually six hours later (laughs) the euphoria sort of starts to drift away and I take off my mask and I sit up and and Dr. R and Dr. K ask me how it is and they give me more forms and they have me write down everything that happened which is why I can say it all to you tonight (laughs) I remember it. And um, a friend of mine comes to pick me up and and we get in the cab and we're driving back to my place. And as we drive back to my neighborhood, I see these two ladies sitting at a table and they're talking. And I think, isn't that fantastic? Look at them. They're friends. They're talking. It's so beautiful. They're friends and they like each other. And it's just amazing. And and it just, it kept, feeling that way for the next six months and the next two years and I had the great honor of being patient number 13 out of 29 in a groundbreaking study and the results have been published in the Journal of Psychopharmacology twice and the results were that 70 to 100 percent of the participants felt like it was the most spiritual most meaningful experience of their life and 80 percent of us after three years, still felt the effects. That was nine years ago. So I wish I could say that I still felt all that 
in 2018 when my dad died and last year being quarantined. But I got back those feelings of isolation and depression. But telling this story again and being here with you guys and sharing this moment reminds me once again that I'm morphing in and life is moving on and it's going forward and this is another thing at the table. And I can participate and we're connected and I just gotta trust and let go. Thank you. For this week's episode, folks, this is Bleachers behind me now, and we just heard from the one and only Gail Thomas. Look her up at Real Gail Thomas on Twitter. And once again, risk-show.com/tour is where to go to get your tickets for our August 18th show at Caveat in New York City, 7 p.m. Eastern, or the live stream that you can watch wherever you are. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Don't forget, folks, we are curious to see if anyone who lives in New York City or near New York City might want to join us for a Risk social event where you can meet the staff, meet some of our storytellers, hang out, meet other Risk fans. Let me know. Reach out to me at kevin at risk-show.com and we will keep you informed about a possible future in-person Risk social event. And folks, did you know that you can hire me personally for storytelling coaching or even just brainstorming on your creative life? 
or even your sex life. I've had all kinds of wonderful one-on-ones with people working on art shows, solo performances, memoirs. I've worked with trial lawyers and preachers and teachers and doctors and folks of all walks of life who just wanted to meet with me and consult about storytelling or creative endeavors like podcasting or creating your own startup around a creative endeavor. And I've met with some people just on life advice around BDSM and all of that sort of thing. So you can find me at kevinallison.com. I also do little fun video messages for people. Sometimes they're fun, sometimes they're very heartfelt. You can make the request yourself of what you'd like to hear from me. Send a little message to someone for their birthday or whatever it might be. That's at cameo.com slash thekevinallison. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. What it sounds like, right? We oui, monsieur. Sounds like Benoit balls. Benoit balls. Benoit balls. Benoit balls. That was probably too many marbles. <laughs>